Section 15 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Footnote. This letter and the following anecdote were communicated by Mr. Rogers to Sir Walter Scott's son-in-law, John Lockhart, February 1834. My dear sir, you asked me not long ago if I could recall any of his, in square brackets, Walter Scott's, conversation. Happy should I be if I could, but with a single exception I can only remember generally the charm which he threw around him wherever he came. That exception is, however, at your service. Sitting one day alone with him in your house, it was the day but one before he left it to embark at Portsmouth for Malta, I led him, among other things, to tell me once again a story of himself which he had formerly told me, and which I had often wished to recover. When I returned home, I wrote it down as nearly as I could in his own words, and here they are. The subject is an achievement worthy of Ulysses himself, and such as many of his schoolfellows could no doubt have related of him, but I fear I have done it no justice, though the story is so very characteristic that it should not be lost. The inimitable manner in which he told it, the glance of the eye, the turn of the head, and the light that played over his faded features as one by one the circumstances came back to him, accompanied by a thousand boyish feelings that had slept perhaps for years, these no language, not even his own, could convey to you, but you can supply them. Would that others could do so who had not the good fortune to know him, Samuel Rogers. Quote, there was a boy in my class at school who stood always at the top, nor could I with all my efforts supplant him. Day passed after day, and still he kept his place, do what I would, till at length I observed that when a question was asked him, he always fumbled with his fingers at a particular button in the lower part of his waistcoat. To remove it, therefore, became expedient in my eyes, and in an evil moment it was removed with a knife. Great was my anxiety to know the success of my measure, and it succeeded too well. When the boy was again questioned, his fingers sought again for the button, but it was not to be found. In his distress he looked down for it. It was to be seen no more than to be felt. He stood confounded, and I took possession of his place nor did he ever recover it, or ever, I believe, suspect who was the author of his wrong. Often in after-life has the sight of him smote me as I passed by him, and often have I resolved to make him some reparation, but it ended in good resolutions. Though I never renewed my acquaintance with him, I often saw him, for he filled some inferior office in one of the courts of law at Edinburgh. Poor fellow, he took early to drinking, and I believe he is dead. Unquote. Friday, October the twenty-first, eighteen thirty-one. I introduced Sir Walter Scott to Madame D'Arblay, having taken him with me to her house. She had not heard that he was lame, and when he limped towards a chair, she said, "Timmy, Sir Walter, I hope you have not met with an accident." He answered. 
an accident, madam, nearly as old as my birth. At the time when Scott and Byron were the two lions of London, Hookham Freer observed great poets formerly, Homer and Milton, were blind. Now they are lame. One forenoon Scott was sitting for his bust to Chantry. He was in despair at the dull and heavy expression of his countenance. Suddenly Fuller, Jack Fuller, the then buffoon of the House of Commons, was announced by a servant. And as suddenly Scott's face was lighted up to that pitch of animation which the sculptor desired, and which he made all haste to avail himself of. After dining at my house, Sir Walter, then Mr. Scott, accompanied me to a party given by Lady Jersey. We met Sheridan there, who put the question to Scott in express terms. Pray, Mr. Scott, did you or did you not write Waverley? Scott replied, On my honour, I did not. Now, though Scott may perhaps be justified for returning an answer in the negative, I cannot think that he is to be excused for strengthening it with on my honour. When I lived in the temple, Mackintosh and Richard Sharp used to come to my chambers and stay there for hours talking metaphysics. One day they were so intent on their first cause, spirit and matter, that they were unconscious of my having left them, paid a visit, and returned. I was a little angry at this, and to show my indifference about them, I sat down and wrote letters, without taking any notice of them. Mackintosh told me that he had received in his youth comparatively little instruction. Whatever learning he possessed, he owed to himself. He had a prodigious memory and could repeat by heart more of Cicero than you would easily believe. His knowledge of Greek was slender. I never met a man with a fuller mind than Mackintosh. Such readiness on all subjects, such a talker. Lord Ellenborough had infinite wit. When the income tax was imposed, he said that Lord Kenyon who was not very nice in his habits, intended in consequence of it to lay down his pocket-handkerchief. A lawyer one day pleading before him and using several times the expression, my unfortunate client, Lord Ellenborough suddenly interrupted him, there, sir, the court is with you. Lord Ellenborough was once about to go on the circuit when Lady E. said that she should like to accompany him. He replied that he had no objections, provided she did not encumber the carriage with bandboxes, which were his utter abhorrence. They set off. During the first day's journey, Lord Ellenborough, happening to stretch his legs, struck his feet against something below the seat. He discovered that it was a bandbox. His indignation is not to be described. Up went the window and out went the bandbox. The coachman stopped and the footman, thinking that the bandbox had tumbled out of the window by some extraordinary chance, were going to pick it up when Lord Ellenborough furiously called out, Drive on! The bandbox, accordingly, 
was left by a ditch side. Having reached the county town where he was to officiate as judge, Lord Ellenborough proceeded to array himself for his appearance in the courthouse. Now, he said, where's my wig? Where is my wig? My lord, replied his attendant, it was thrown out of the carriage window. The English highwaymen of former days, indeed the race is now extinct, were remarkably well-bred personages. Thomas Grenville, while travelling with Lord Derby, and Lord Tankerville, while travelling with his father, were attacked by highwaymen. On both occasions, six or seven shots were exchanged between them and the highwaymen. And when the parties assailed had expended all their ammunition, the highwaymen came up to them and took their purses in the politest manner possible. One morning I had a visit from Lancaster, whom I had never before seen. The moment he entered the room, he began to inform me of his distresses and burst into tears. He was unable, he said, to carry on his school for want of money. He owed some hundred pounds to his landlord. He had been to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, who would do nothing for him, etc., etc., and he requested me to go and see his school. I went, and was so delighted with what I saw, the system of monitors, etc., that I immediately lent him the sum which he stood in need of, and he put his title deeds into my hands. I never was repaid one farthing of that money. Indeed, on finding that Lancaster owed much larger sums, both to William Allen and to Joseph Box, I forbore urging my claims, and returned the title deeds. George Selwyn, as everybody knows, delighted in seeing executions. He never missed being in at a death at Tyburn. When Lord Holland, the father of Charles Fox, was confined to bed by a dangerous illness, he was informed by his servant that Mr. Selwyn had recently called to inquire for him. On his next visit, said Lord Holland, be sure you let him in, whether I am alive or a corpse. For if I am alive, I shall have great pleasure in seeing him, and if I am a corpse, he will have great pleasure in seeing me. The late Lord Holland told me this. Payne Knight was seized with an utter loathing of life, and destroyed himself. He had complaints which were very painful, and his nerves were completely shattered. Shortly before his death he would come to me of an evening and tell me how sick he was of existence. He had recourse to the strongest prussic acid, and I understand he was dead before it touched his lips. Coleridge was a marvellous talker. One morning, when Hook and Freer also breakfasted with me, Coleridge talked for three hours without intermission about poetry, and so admirably that I wish every word he uttered had been written down. Sometimes his harangues were quite unintelligible, not only to myself, but to others. Wordsworth and I called upon him one forenoon when he was lodging off Pall Mall. He talked uninterruptedly for about two hours, during which Wordsworth listened to him with profound attention, every now and then nodding his head as if in assent. On quitting the lodging, I said to Wordsworth, 
well, for my own part, I could not make head or tail of Coleridge's oration. Pray, did you understand it? Not one syllable of it, was Wordsworth's reply. Footnote. Wordsworth once observed to me, quote, What is somewhere stated in print that I said Coleridge was the only person whose intellect ever astonished me is quite true. His conversation was even finer in his youth than in his later days, for as he advanced in life he became a little dreamy and hyper-metaphysical. End of footnote. Speaking of composition, Coleridge said most beautifully, What comes from the heart goes to the heart. Coleridge spoke and wrote very disparagingly of Mackintosh, but Mackintosh, who had not a particle of envy or jealousy in his nature, did full justice on all occasions to the great powers of Coleridge. Southey used to say that the moment anything assumed the shape of a duty, Coleridge felt himself incapable of discharging it. In all his domestic relations, Southey was the most amiable of men, but he had no general philanthropy. He was what you call a cold man. He was never happy except when reading a book or making one. Coleridge once said to me, I can't think of Southey without seeing him either mending or using a pen. I spent some time with him at Lord Lonsdale's in company with Wordsworth and others, and while the rest of the party were walking about, talking and amusing themselves, Southey preferred sitting solace in the library. How cold he is, was the exclamation of Wordsworth, himself so joyous and communicative. Southey told me that he had read Spencer through about thirty times, and that he could not read Pope through once. He thought meanly of Virgil, so did Coleridge, and so at one time did Wordsworth. When I lately mentioned to Wordsworth an unfavourable opinion which he had formerly expressed to me about a passage of Virgil, oh, he said, we used to talk a great deal of nonsense in those days. Early in the present century I set out on a tour in Scotland accompanied by my sister, but an accident which happened to have prevented us from going as far as we had intended. During our excursion we fell in with Wordsworth, Miss Wordsworth and Coleridge, who were at the same time making a tour in a vehicle that looked very like a cart. Wordsworth and Coleridge were entirely occupied in talking about poetry and the whole care of looking out for cottages where they might get refreshment and pass the night, as well as of seeing their poor horse fed and littered, devolved upon Miss Wordsworth. She was a most delightful person, so full of talent, so simple-minded and so modest. If I am not mistaken, Coleridge proved so impracticable a travelling companion that Wordsworth and his sister were at last obliged to separate from him. Footnote. Coleridge, writes Wordsworth, was at that time in bad spirits, and somewhat too much in love with his own dejection. 
and he departed from us, as is recorded in my sister's journal, soon after we left Loch Lomond. Memoirs of Wordsworth. This tour took place in 1803. End of footnote. During that tour they met with Scott, who repeated to them a portion of his then unpublished lay, which Wordsworth, as might be expected, did not greatly admire. I do indeed regret that Wordsworth has printed only fragments of his sister's journal. It is most excellent and ought to have been published entire. I was walking with Lord Lonsdale on the terrace at Louth Castle when he said, I wish I could do something for poor Campbell. My rejoinder was, I wish you would do something for poor Wordsworth, who is in such straitened circumstances that he and his family deny themselves animal food several times a week. Lord Lonsdale was the more inclined to assist Wordsworth because the Wordsworth family had been hardly used by the preceding Lord Lonsdale, and he eventually proved one of his kindest friends. What a noble-minded person Lord Lonsdale was! I have received from him in this room hundreds of pounds for the relief of literary men. End of section 15